0: Welcome to this episode of the Internist Guide 2, a limited series by the Internet Work Podcast, focusing on high-yield clinical guidelines. On this episode, we will be going through the 2016 Canadian Cardiovascular Society Guidelines on perioperative cardiac risk assessment and management for patients who undergo non-cardiac surgery. Joining us today is Dr. Kevin Singh, a general internist at Brook Hospital and assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He has a particular interest in perioperative medicine and completed additional training through the perioperative vascular training program through McMaster University. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Singh. We're excited to have you. So before we delve into the guidelines, Dr. Singh, could you just walk us through the importance of monitoring for cardiac complications within the first month after non-cardiac surgery?
1: So screening for myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery is very, very important. Uh, About 18% of patients will experience some form of myocardial injury within the first 30 days after surgery. And you know we're talking about a lot of surgeries here, over 300 million annually. Most patients will have MINS on the day of surgery and on post-operative day one, about 17% on post-operative day two, and only 5.3% on post-op day three that we know from the vision study. Um, So majority is happening within that first 48 to 72-hour time frame. Why is it important? Well, myocardial injury is an umbrella term and encompasses simply troponin elevation, so evidence of ischemia, but without any signs or symptoms of true infarction. And it also includes myocardial infarction. And we know that these two entities are both prognostically important, and 30-day mortality rates are similar between these groups. So MINS is very important.
0: So the scope of the guideline is divided into four themes preoperative cardiac risk assessment, perioperative cardiac risk modification, monitoring for perioperative cardiac events, and management of perioperative
1: complications.
0: Can you talk about which patients in general should undergo cardiac assessment before non-cardiac surgery?
1: Yeah, so um, based on the guidelines, patients over the age of 65 or between the ages of 45 to 64 with significant known cardiovascular disease should undergo risk assessment prior to surgery. Now, the significant known cardiovascular disease includes coronary artery disease, stroke, peripheral arterial disease, congestive heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, or known intracardiac structural abnormality. Again, this only pertains to surgery that is elective and where the patient is requiring an overnight admission.
0: Okay. So it's pretty clear that if there's an emergency case, for instance, a life or limb condition, that the vast majority of patients' values and preferences will favor the benefits of surgery. But what's your approach to those that undergo a semi-urgent or urgent procedure, such as breast surgery for a metastatic cancer? Can you go through your approach to pre-op assessment
1: in these patients? For, for, for sure. And I think it comes down to balancing the risks and benefits. Um, In semi-urgent or urgent or emergent cases, very rarely would cardiac risk stratification delay or preclude surgery entirely. Um, Only if there's an unstable cardiac condition, for example, someone is in overt congestive heart failure, if there's a severe obstructive abnormality like Hockham or severe pulmonary hypertension, might further risk stratification be undertaken with something like an echocardiogram. Generally, however, we proceed with surgery and bypass any preoperative BNP testing. Do they have an elevated risk score based on the RCRI? Do they meet the criteria age over sixty-five? And we just simply monitor with troponin and ECG for minutes.
0: So, moving on to those elective surgical cases, can you expand on clinical risk indices in terms of the RCRI or NSQIP, MICA, and ACS Risk Index? Can you also expand on why the RCRI is preferentially used here in Canada?
1: For sure. The RCRI is, the, and that's the Revised Cardiac Risk Index, is a pretty standard risk calculator that we use. It's quite simple to use six factors known history of coronary artery disease, stroke, or TIA, known history of congestive heart failure, patients who are diabetic on insulin, patients with chronic kidney disease, a creatinine greater than only 177, and based on the risk of surgery whether it be intrathoracic, intraperitoneal, or suprainguinal vascular. The reason why that is used is there are many studies that have externally validated this in a a population where postoperative troponins are measured. NISQIP-MICA and NISQIP-ACS calculators are very comprehensive. So the RCRI that I just listed, there are a lot of other comorbidities, liver disease, respiratory disease, for example, that are not included in that calculator. They do portend risk. We just don't have a means by which to quantify it. So the NISQIP um, calculator is much more comprehensive. But having said that, none of these other tools have undergone external validation in a study that has systematically monitored troponin measurements. And on top of that, the patients in this study then are not really well represented. And that's why we, we use the RCR.
0: When you're calculating the RCRI score, a history of ischemic heart disease is a part of the criteria. But something I was hoping you could clarify, Dr. Singh, for us, and that's often a point of contention do patients who have a history of coronary artery disease that's been revascularized still receive a point?
1: That's a very good question. And so, ischemic heart disease on the RCRI is defined as a history of myocardial infarction, a positive exercise stress test, complaint of ischemic chest pain, or relief of pain with nitrate use or an ECG that shows pathologic Q-waves. So patients who've had a CABG or PCI, they only meet the criteria if they have these findings that persist after their procedure.
0: In the elective OR setting, can you touch on which patients you're ordering a BNP or an NT-pro BNP on? And feasibly speaking, when do you order this prior to the
1: OR? For sure. So NT-pro BNP is routinely ordered in patients who are over the age of 65 undergoing non-cardiac surgery who require admission to hospital, or if the RCRI is one or higher, or if their age is 45 to 64 with the previously mentioned cardiac risk factors.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And let's say the BNP is positive. So for example, more than 300 if we're dealing with an NT pro BNP or more than 92 for BNP, what kind of risk does this confer to the patient and what can we recommend for uh, the post-op monitoring
1: period? for sure so there was a meta analysis of about 21 2200 patients from 18 studies that looked at the prognostic importance of NT-proBNP a value under 300 carries a risk estimate of 4.9% for risk of death and myocardial infarction after 30 days after non cardiac surgery above a value of 300 this jumps to 21.8% so prognostically important it indicates that these patients are at risk and therefore patients who meet the criteria a BNP above 92 or an NT Pro BNP above 300 should be monitored for MIMS using postoperative troponins in the ECG.
0: And practically speaking, how do you go about explicitly communicating the perioperative cardiac risk to your patients in clinic?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's important to use the risk estimate from the RCRI calculator. So, um, you know, a score of zero corresponding to a 30 day risk of approximately 4%, score of one to 6%. Score of two to ten percent, and score of three or higher to fifteen percent or higher. Of course, I always let the patient know that our calculator is based on a certain set of criteria, and as I mentioned previously, there are other criteria. For example, liver disease or respiratory disease that are not encapsulated in the RCRI that may reflect a higher value than than what the RCRI may quote.
0: I understand that we don't routinely order pre-op echos for risk assessment in patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery. But that said, are there any special populations who you would send for ECHO investigations preoperatively?
1: For sure. And I think this is where a good history and physical exam come into play. Um, if you have suspicion of a severe obstructive condition, like hawking or severe aortic stenosis, if someone has severe pulmonary hypertension, or an unstable cardiac condition, like they're having an acute coronary syndrome, or if they're an unstable congestive heart failure, a preoperative echocardiogram would be warranted.
0: In the VISION-CCTA study, preoperative coronary computed tomographic angiographies, CCTA, was suggested to enhance perioperative risk prediction beyond clinical data. Is there a role for CCTA based on our 2016 guidelines?
1: Uh, the, the short answer is no. The primary outcome in that study looked at cardiovascular death or non-fatal MI within 30 days of surgery. So compared to the RCRI alone, operative ccta improved risk estimation among patients who suffered the primary outcome but it also overestimated the risk in patients who did not suffer the primary outcome so it tells us whether patients have coronary disease and are at risk but that overestimation can have negative consequences cancelling of surgery delay of surgery inappropriately or overordering revascularization when it might not have changed the primary outcome
0: okay that makes sense And what's your approach to initiating and or continuing aspirin in the perioperative period?
1: So we have a lot of data that looks into this. Um, The most quoted trial being poised to to was a randomized control trial that looked at a variety of patients who underwent non-cardiac surgery, about 10,000 patients who are randomized to aspirin or placebo. And, you know, it was found that for this overall group, there was an increased risk of bleeding without any reduction in 30-day mortality or MI. Having said that, subgroup analysis does show there is benefit in patients who've had prior PCI, and it's important to note that patients who were excluded include those who had a recent bare metal stent, a drug-eluting stent, or recent carotid endarterectomy. So these patients should not be included in that discussion. For, for this reason, the 2016 guidelines actually recommend not initiating aspirin, but aspirin can be continued in the setting of a recent stent for patients who've recently undergone carotid endarterectomy. So
0: Okay, and and practically speaking, what's your approach to restarting aspirin for patients with an indication for chronic aspirin?
1: Aspirin should be restarted as soon as possible, and it's a risk-benefit discussion with the surgery team to see when hemostasis has been adequately achieved and when it can be reintroduced, but as soon as possible.
0: And what about patients who are on ACE inhibitors or ARBs? So, when do we hold these in the perioperative period, and what's your approach to restarting them, particularly to avoid hypotension?
1: Sure. So the CCS guidelines would advocate for holding ACE inhibitors and ARBs twenty four hours preoperatively. So essentially, do not take your dose on the morning of surgery, um, and for considering restarting these by postoperative day two to really avoid the risk of intraoperative and immediate postoperative hypotension. And that data is uh, from several um, small uh, randomized control trials. Having said that, we have new data from POIS three uh, that was released at the end of twenty twenty two that looked at patients who were taking these medications, a hypotension avoidance strategy and a hypertension avoidance strategy. In the hypertensive avoidance strategy group, patients took their ACE inhibitor and ARBs on the morning of surgery, and they continued to take it postoperatively. In the hypotension avoidance group, patients avoided these medications on the morning of surgery, and they did not resume them until postoperative day two. If they had excessive hypertension on postoperative day one or two, they took other agents other than the ACE inhibitor regard. And really there was no difference in terms of primary or secondary outcomes. Primary outcome being major vascular complications. So pois three might suggest that, you know, there might not be a role for holding any of these medications at all and that it may just be of use to continue all of the patient's medications perioperatively rather than get confused and hold this and hold that and restart this and restart that.
0: Moving on to MINS, which is myocardial injury um, post-non-cardiac surgery, patients that require post-optrope monitoring for 48 to 72 hours either have a positive BNP or age greater than 65 or those between ages of 18 to 64 with a history of cardiovascular disease. How do we detect MINS in these patients and does this confer the same level of risk as a symptomatic type 1 MI?
1: Interestingly, yes, it does confer the same risk. So we know that the 30-day mortality between those who have simply a troponin elevation in the absence of signs or symptoms, meaning the universal definition of an MI, versus those who actually have a true myocardial infarction, 30-day mortality rates are similar. So pretty important stuff. In terms of actually uh, detecting MINS, uh, this is based on our troponin assay, and it really depends which assay you're using. You know, if you're using the newer troponin I assays, if you're using the Abbott version, greater than 60. If you're using the Centaur assay, greater than 75. Generally speaking, greater than the 99th percentile upper limit of normal would be a positive finding.
0: There's some uncertainty about what to do with patients with MINS. So can you speak about your own approach and what are your recommendations regarding statins and aspirin post op
1: yeah. and I think we know from Vision CCTA that if a patient has mints, they likely have some degree of underlying obstructive coronary disease. These patients benefit from being on at least aspirin and statin. Where, where do we go from there in terms of, you know, do they warrant an echo? Do they warrant further risk stratification with exercise or pharmacologic stress testing, revascularization? The answer is we don't know yet, and practices will vary depending on the clinician. There is some limited data to support the use of dabigatran, 110 milligrams POVID from the managed trial in 2017. But, you know, the trial, there are a few issues with it. It was discontinued early. There was a high rate of discontinuation of the medication. And the primary outcome was actually changed midway through the trial. So it isn't generally used by by internists everywhere. So for now, I would say aspirin, statin, and consider outpatient risk stratification, depending on the degree of the troponin rise.
0: Okay, that's all for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Singh, for joining us, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Internet Work.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Internist Guide to Perioperative Cardiac Risk Stratification. A special thanks to our guest, Dr. Kevin Singh, for joining us today. This episode was recorded and produced by Dr. Maya Stein sound editing by dr Allison Lai. the internet's guide to limited series was created by doctors Catherine laurer and shaliza helene the internet work podcast is executively produced by doctors Allison Lai, waya karyanopoulos and zara morelli theme song by dr lakshman vasim thank you for listening and we hope to see you again soon